Some of you might say, well, I could see the problem with that. Somebody just inviting themselves over to my house without even asking. Is that the problem? That is not the problem. Although that's exactly what Jesus did. He didn't ask. He says, uh, Zach, I'm with you tonight. Um, deal with it. And, um, but that wasn't the problem. Jesus being presumptuous about where he is staying was not the problem. The problem was, he said, I'm staying with you, Zacchaeus, who was well known to be the most evil man in the city. How's that for a reputation? The most evil man in the city. So when Jesus, who's considered to be the most righteous man in the, in the region, says, I'm staying with the most evil man in the city, the religious people in particular got very upset, to say the least. So here's how the story goes in Luke chapter 19. We'll start with verses one and two. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. How does a chief tax collector become very rich, do you think? Stealing, stealing from his own people, from his own neighbors. He was utterly corrupt, an utterly corrupt man. But it was not your just bread and butter corruption. This was a very special kind of corruption, a corruption that involved deep, deep betrayal. Here's how it goes. Try to follow along. The Roman Empire invades brutally the people of Israel. Brutal invasion, brutal oppression. In order to fund the Roman Empire and to fund their brutal oppression, they have to collect taxes from the people they oppress. So they hire tax collectors from among the people they oppress. So Rome hired this Jewish man, Zacchaeus, to take taxes from his neighbors to fund the Roman Empire that oppresses the Jews. How do you think that goes over? Not very well. Not only is he working for the Roman Empire, collecting taxes from his neighbors to fund the Roman Empire, but he's taking more than was legally required. And that was kind of a deal with the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire said, hey, listen, tax collectors, we know you're taking a bit of a risk. We know you're gonna be hated among your own people. So you feel free to just skim whatever you need to take. We need our minimums from you and you will pay us our minimums. Everything you collect above that is yours. Enjoy, have fun. That was Zacchaeus. Incredibly corrupt, incredibly hated. The most evil man in the neighborhood. There was no one worse. The story goes on in Luke chapter 19 and it gets a little strange here, a little bit strange here. Uh, Luke 19, three and four. Zach tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd, so he ran and climbed a sycamore tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. Now, you read that passage and you think, okay, well, that's kind of strange. Why does Zacchaeus' stature matter? Why does where he went matter? Why does him climbing up a tree matter? What in the world is, is, is going on here? Why does this matter, his height? Why does it matter that he climbed up a tree? Isn't the point of the story that Jesus is the most righteous man in the world, and here's Zach, the evil man in the town, and that's the point, right? That Jesus was hanging out with him. Why does it talk about his height, and why does it talk about that sycamore tree? Well, I believe in the Bible every single phrase is incredibly intentional, and so I'm going to give you my opinion about why it talks about his height, why it talks about the tree at the end of the service. I think it's important here. We'll get back to it. Luke 19.5, the story goes on. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name, Zacchaeus. He said, quickly come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Not a, not a question, not a, not a request, but I'm staying at your house today. 
to which the entire city of Jericho gasped because everybody was out there. The streets were packed. Zach couldn't see over all the crowds. He was a wee little man. And so, you know, there's this whole big drama about, I got to see Jesus. And then Jesus saw him and says, I'm staying with you tonight. And the city went nuts. Now, if you were raised in Sunday school, you might've sang a little song called the Zacchaeus song. Some of you already have this song in your head. This is from Veggie Tales, right? Feel free to sing along, right? It goes like this. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and wee little man was he really little. Come on. He climbed up in a sycamore tree. Some of you are with me, some of you are not. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree, and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down. Going to your house today. Ready? Yes, going to your house today. All right, so that's the song, all right? Some of you are looking at me like this is the weirdest thing I've ever done in church. But this is a very famous song. It's a very famous kid's song. You grew up in Sunday school, you probably sang this song because it's a very famous story. Zacchaeus, this wee little man, weirdly climbing up a tree, and then Jesus looking at him and saying, I'm staying at your house today. And, and it's an interesting, kind of an odd little song, but... We've got to realize the depth and the power of what was happening here because this was deeply offensive to these people. Jesus, you're the son of God. Jesus, you are righteous. And you're going to stay at the house of the most evil man in town who steals from us every day, who lives in this palace from our money. And we're peasants. We're struggling. Are you seriously going to do that? Jesus says, I'm seriously going to do that. Luke 19, six through seven. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy, but the people were displeased. That is an understatement. Bible's full of understatements. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. They grumbled. They grumbled. And you, you can understand why they grumbled. He's ripping us off. He's rich, we're poor, stealing from us. You're going to spend the day and the night with him, and you're going to eat and drink and feast at his house. What about us? And they're grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. And, and I understand, right? I understand. But here's something we have to notice, not only about the story with Jesus and Zach, but about the story and, and Jesus and every notorious sinner in every city that he visits everyone that's been outcast, everyone that's marginalized, everyone that's on the edge, everyone that's been rejected and judged, Jesus goes straight to them and immediately welcomes them. Jesus always leads with a full and unconditional welcome. He always leads with a full and unconditional welcome. How did the people of Jericho want him to lead? You can imagine, with judgment, Jesus, straighten him out, tell him to stop stealing, Tell them to give back the money. That's how they wanted Jesus to lead. But Jesus instead leads with a full and unconditional welcome. And that's what Jesus always does. Going to the most outcast, the most marginalized, the most judged people in the culture, and he welcomes them without condition, without judgment. He treats them with dignity and respect. And he always shows love and grace and forgiveness. And he serves them. He serves them. And this causes just great, quote, displeasure and grumbling among the city because it just doesn't seem right. Why would you go to them? They're mess-ups. They don't fit in our, in our cultural norms. They don't fit in our religious norms. Why are you doing that? 
But we read the story and we, and we think, wow, this is actually very beautiful, that Jesus would go to the people who are the most on the edges and welcome them in and make them feel warmly welcomed and, and, and befriended and known and seen. That is such a beautiful thing. And yet all of the, the people from the religious culture says, no, you can't do that. Jesus, don't lead with a welcome. You gotta lead with judgment. You gotta lead with repentance. You gotta lead with squaring your life away, right? Because isn't that what God wants? He wants us to repent of sin and get our life squared away so we can be holy and righteous and obedient. Isn't that what God wants? And Jesus sort of implies that's really not the priority. The priority is not Zach's behavior. The priority is Zach. Jesus says, I'm not, I'm not seeing you by all of your failures because he didn't see anybody else by their failures. We all have them. He just saw Zacchaeus as a human being made in God's image, as a human being that, yes, has failed and, yes, has hurt a lot of people, but he leads with grace, he leads with love, he leads with welcome. The problem with that is, is Jesus led with grace and love and forgiveness and, and welcoming, and yet a lot of Christian communities and a lot of religious communities don't lead in the same way. Oftentimes, we lead with judgment. And again, it's completely understandable because sometimes what people do hurts people, and so we wanna see that stopped. Somebody stop it. Somebody call out that sin. Call out the failure. Call for repentance. Call for turning things around, right? But God always leads with relationship. Always leads with love. Always leads with forgiveness. Always leads with an unconditional welcome. Kerry Newoff is an author, a blogger, a commentator, and, and he's got a lot to say about how the Christian church today may not align so well with the culture that Jesus was trying to create. Here's what he says. Jesus said Christians should be known for how deeply we love. Yet studies show that in the eyes of many non-Christians, we're known for how deeply we judge. Yeah, does that resonate? And this is study after study. This isn't Kerry Newhoff's opinion. It's not my opinion. It's not even Jesus' opinion. It is study after study. As people are leaving the church in droves, I just read an article two days ago that another 11% of the Christian community is gone in the last four years. And, and before that, it was 20% had left over the, over the previous 20 years. We're talking about people running away from the church like it's on fire. And then study after study, Pew Research Institute, Barna Research Institute, why are you leaving the church? And time and time and time and time again, it's because it's judgmental. It's just mean. It's leading with judgment and not with love. He goes on to say this, the problem in many cases is not that unchurched people don't know any Christians, is that they do know Christians <laughs> and they don't like them. And it's not just the Christians they know, nobody in here, everybody here is all good and chill. <laughs> but it's not just the Christians they know, it's the Christians that they see online and on the news broadcasts. And it's just mean and exclusive and divisive, calling out the failures of others. It's just become a sport. It's not aligned with the cause of Christ. There's a little law I think is, is you know, as, as you know, predictable as the sun rising in the east and the setting in the west. Some of the most vocal Christians are the meanest Christians. Some of the most religious people are the most judgmental people. I mean, it's just the way it goes. And so, you know, for all of us, we've got to look at ourselves and say, is, is there any of this in me? Is there any of this in me? Is there any of the, the religious leadership in me that we saw judging Jesus for how he failed to judge others? Because it's still around today. 
And so many people feel stiff-armed from religious communities. So many people who struggle with addictions feel unwelcome. They're carrying the consequences of their addictions. They're carrying maybe the guilt of their addictions. And they say, well, I'm just not the church type. I just, just don't fit in that. I'm struggling. And, and some people, and I've known dozens and dozens over the years, hundreds and hundreds, that if I square myself away, maybe I'll be acceptable in a religious community. But they don't feel accepted as they are. So many people do not feel accepted as they are. LGBTQ people often feel unwelcome in religious communities because religious communities are often known for kind of preaching out in the air these, these religious standards or behavior standards or lifestyle standards and just dehumanizing people. They don't feel welcome. Unwed mothers and single mothers often feel unwelcome in religious communities. People who are desperately poor often feel unwelcome. Are they really going to accept me as I am? So very often they feel, you know, sort of good in the charitable arm of maybe a church ministry, but don't feel welcome to church. People who have made very terrible choices in their lives, they may have messed up a ton of stuff. They may have betrayed their marriage vows or, or messed up their kids or committed a crime or they somehow ruined their lives or the lives of others. They made huge mistakes in their lives. And you would think they would flock to a church because there they're going to find grace and forgiveness and a second chance, a third chance, a 470th chance. That I need a second chance, but they don't feel welcome at church. They just don't. Jesus taught us how to do better. We just have to follow the example of Jesus, specifically with Zacchaeus, leading with an unconditional welcome. An unconditional welcome. Now, this is the part of the story where very understandable questions are asked. All right, here's Zacchaeus stealing from his own people, funding the Roman invasion of his own people. I mean, clearly the worst of the worst. Jesus says, I'm staying with you tonight. Is Jesus therefore endorsing his sin? Is Jesus endorsing his crimes against his own people? And you might sort of assume that because Jesus didn't say to Zacchaeus, hey, I'll stay at your house if you commit right now in front of the whole city to stop stealing from your neighbors. He didn't do that. He just said, I'm staying with you, and off they went. And so is Jesus endorsing his crime? Is Jesus endorsing his sin? It's a fair question. That question is still asked today. Hey, if you're a welcoming church and your doors are wide open and anybody can come just as they are, there's no sign on the door that says, you know, square your life away first before you get here, or your you know, lifestyle's got to meet religious norms here before you can come. If you're a wide open door church welcoming everybody, aren't you endorsing everybody's failures who comes in the door? Your failures, my failures, everybody's. If we don't lead with this is sin, and this is sin, and you're a sinner, and you're a sinner. If we lead with the welcome, as Jesus led with a welcome, are we not implicitly endorsing failure? And it's a tension, but we follow Jesus in that tension. And Jesus always led with unconditional love. But here's really the answer to the question. Is you wouldn't allow someone or endorse someone to hurt another person. You just wouldn't do it because grace extends everywhere. Yes, grace extends to Zacchaeus. Absolutely. And yes, God's grace extends to us. We've hurt people by the things we've said. We've hurt people by the things we've done. And so we're grateful that God's grace extends to us and forgives us. We're grateful in this story and understand that God's grace extends to Zacchaeus. But God's grace also extends to the people that Zacchaeus hurt. 
And so Jesus would never say, oh, Zacchaeus, I'm, I'm so full of love and grace for you. I, we're not gonna worry about all the people that you're hurting. No, you worry about the people that you're hurting and we extend grace to them as well. To put it this way, God's grace also extends to the people we may have hurt. So he graciously asks us to stop hurting people. And that's what he did with Zacchaeus as well. As we receive grace and forgiveness, God says, hey, be gracious to other people. If you're hurting other people, we need you to rein that in. Let's not do that anymore because God's grace is on them as well. And the reality is this, true transformation, us walking a road where we're not hurting people the way we might have in the past, true transformation is a response to grace, not judgment. You can wave a finger in people's face as long as you want. You can judge them all day long. Is that gonna change their heart? Not one bit. And that's what religious communities often do is call out sin and wave religious fingers in people's faces, but that doesn't change the heart. It's the grace of God through Jesus that changes the heart, not judgment. And so here's what happened in Luke 19, eight. Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. You know what that means? He stole a lot of money. (laughs) That's a lot of money that he stole from his own people. But he was so enraptured by the grace of Jesus that saw him and said, I'm with you tonight. He just, he just kind of melted in genuine repentance. He says, I have been hurting people and I'm gonna stop Jesus. I'm not only gonna stop hurting people, I'm gonna try to make it right. Where I've hurt somebody, I'm going to make it right. Now, if the city overheard this, they're like, ooh, that's cool. Four times what he stole, hey, keep stealing. And then, you know, hey, no. But that's what love does. That's what grace does. It transforms the heart. The love of God, the grace of God transforms the heart. And over time, we become more and more loving we can become more and more kind. We hurt people less and less because we know the love of God through Jesus. To put it this way, it's the grace and love and mercy and kindness of God that leads us to a changed heart that then wants to be gracious and loving and merciful and kind to the world around us. That is the gospel. That is the Christian faith in one sentence. The love of God received, the love of God given. That's what Jesus showed Zacchaeus. We sing a song here at Rancho. Um, it's one of the favorites called Holy Water. I love this song. There's a line in there, a verse in there that says this. I don't want to abuse your grace. God, I need it every day. It's the only thing that ever really makes me want to change. That is a water of God, the pure water of God that cleanses us and gives us grace and says, you know what? That is what's going to change me. And I don't want to abuse that grace. And, and God, I, I want to change to become more and more conformed to the image of Christ, to treat people with the love of Jesus, and that only comes by grace, not judgment. And here's another reality we've got to note from this story among dozens of other stories of Jesus uh, engaging people who are labeled sinners. Here's the reality. Religious judgment shuts off God's work. Religious judgment actually shuts off God's work. And this is just dripping with irony Because the reality is people who judge other people believe they are speaking from God. They believe they're defending God. They're defending God's moral code. They're defending God's standards. They're defending God's law. And so they put themselves up as the spokesperson of God. And I've got to condemn you and judge you for your sin. We're not going to talk about mine, but I'm going to condemn you and judge you for your sin because I've got to speak to God. Somebody's got to have the courage to speak for God. And so it's going to be me and I'm going to judge your sin and judge the sin of the world around us. They think they're speaking for God, but in fact, what Jesus says 
is you're shutting off the kingdom of God by doing what you think is done in the name of God. Matthew 23, 13, in a different encounter Jesus had with the religious elites, you Pharisees, hypocrites, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves and you don't let others enter either. Jesus said, what? And he's screaming this to the Pharisees in the courtyards of the city of Jerusalem. And he's saying, you are shutting off the kingdom of heaven. You're shutting the door. And by the way, you're not even in. So you're shutting the door of the kingdom of heaven from outside the kingdom of heaven. They're like, you gotta be kidding me. We are the Pharisees. We're the religious. We speak for God. And Jesus says, eh, no, you don't. And then in another account earlier in Matthew 21, Jesus drops a hammer. Now hold on to your butts on this one. Jesus explained, I tell you the truth, corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of heaven before you priests and elders do. <laughs> Holy cow. I mean, no holes barred. Jesus is just, he, he has had enough with these people judging and judging and shutting the kingdom of heaven. You can't come in, you can't come in, you can't come in. And who's at the top of the list? who are the most excluded is the tax collectors and the prostitutes. They're just the top of the list in these religious leaders' minds, and Jesus just paints a clear picture. Oh, they're coming in. Let's go, let's go. They're like, ooh, yeah, this is great. While the people labeling them as, as sinners, pretending to speak on behalf of God, are on the outside of the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Now, I wanna be clear here. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about the place we go when we die, which is gonna be really cool, see you all there, right? He's not talking about where we go when we die. He's talking about right here, right now. Jesus has a vision of making this world very much like heaven. And he says, listen, these religious judges are, are, are not bringing the kingdom of heaven right here and right now. They're bringing division, division between people and God, division between people and each other. And I'm right and you're wrong and I'm better and you're worse. And, all kinds of divisions of religious divisions and moral divisions and judgmental divisions and political divisions and ethnic divisions. And Jesus says, that's not the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is about unity where we all understand we're united with God by grace just as we are. There's an unconditional welcome that Jesus clearly expresses through Zacchaeus and a ton of other places. And then he says, as we welcome people into the kingdom of heaven together, we're part of the same family. So we're gonna treat each other well with dignity and respect the way Jesus treated Zacchaeus. We're not gonna look at our divisions. We're gonna look at what unites us. And what unites us is that we're all beautifully made in the image of God. What unites us is that we all have failed. None of us can say I'm better than you. We all have failed. So I'm not gonna nitpick your sin. Please don't nitpick mine. And let's walk this journey together of receiving God's love, receiving God's grace, and then giving God's love and giving God's grace. And let's make this world a place of love, a place of unity, a place of acceptance. How cool is that? It's easy for us, you know, maybe to judge the judges which I have to be honest with you, is a lot of fun. But we've all got to, and I've got to ask myself the question, is this just another form of self-righteous judgment, right? <laughs> we can read these stories and, and say, hey, well, hey, Jesus judged the judges, so I'm gonna judge the judges, and, but we've got to check the heart. I've got to check my heart and say, hey, listen, as fun as it is to judge the judges, I know I'm always that close to doing the exact same thing, getting on some high horse, defending God, and 
and just laying waste to people who are very much like the Pharisees. It's in us. And we all have to be careful. We all have to be careful. Because listen, it feels good to think we're right. It feels good to think we're better. It feels good to look down on somebody else. And, and so we've all got to walk that journey of humility. The humility to say, I don't know more than anybody else. The humility that says, I'm not better than anybody else. We're all on this very unique journey. And, and let's walk this together in humility. But I know what it's like to be a Pharisee. I know what it's like to be a Pharisee. I was a committed young religious zealot, absolutely committed to the cause. I went to this little church in Rancho California called Rancho Community Church, little church on a hill up there, got plugged into the youth group, and I loved it. I mean, I loved it, full of great people doing fun things, incredible volunteer leaders, hint, hint, they were just pouring into my life. It was fantastic, fantastic, right? But I, I got in this little strain of Christianity, not necessarily through Rancho, and I won't mention the strain, but I got into this little world of influence that was very, very pharisaical. The same people that were judging and condemning Jesus and judging and condemning Zacchaeus, that's, those are my people. And I loved being a part of those people because you felt good about yourself. We were moral and they were not. We studied our Bible like crazy, studied our Bible so we know more and they know less. It, was, it felt so good. As a teenager from a kind of a rough home trying to find an identity and a purpose in a community, I found it. And it was in this religious zealousy. And you know, my brother got involved in gangs and punk rock and all kinds of stuff, but I was the good church kid and I got patted on the back by everybody. Good moral church kid, good Bible church kid. You ought to go into the ministry. So I did. And early in my ministry, it was the same thing, just judging, judging, judging. We're right, you're wrong. We're moral, they're not. We're better. And it felt so good. It felt so good. But during uh, my very, very early ministry, and I'm talking about, I was somewhere between 17 or 19 years old. This is in the late 80s. I was asked as this young up-and-coming minister uh, to visit a man who was dying of AIDS. And my immediate thought was not going to happen because, uh, you know, if, you were, if you're my age or older, and I'm what, 40? <laughs> 53. So, you know, if you're mid-50s and older, when the AIDS epidemic hit globally, it was scary. Scary. There was no treatment, no treatment. You got AIDS, it was a death sentence and it was a horrific way to go, horrific. It was assumed that it was a sexually transmitted disease but there was all kinds of chatter that maybe it's beyond that, maybe you can get AIDS outside of sexual activity and so there was just fear everywhere. I mean, you, you remember COVID fear a few years ago? I mean, times 100 because it was an absolute death sentence. And I was asked to go as a teenager religious zealot to see a man in his last days of AIDS. He was a gay man and he was an atheist. I don't even know why I was invited. I guess somebody, I guess I could save him. I don't know what the deal was, but <laughs> it's ludicrous. But I went, I just went. And it was just one of those moments where nothing in me wanted to go. There was some fear, there was some insecurity. And honestly, there was some judgment. I mean, if you want a, a little history lesson on what the worst religious judgment can look like, look at the Christian re reaction to the AIDS epidemic in the 80s, and it is horrifying. 
and I went to see this guy. And it was as bad as I had thought it was going to be. I walked into his very small house and on the wall, science is golden, you know, and he was not a religious guy at all. Uh, We started small talking and I think he became aware very soon that I was not exactly in my comfort zone and he was very gracious to me. We had some small talk that turned into some really good conversation about his life and my life and he was very interested in my world and and uh, just showed a lot of grace and care toward me. We got into matters of, of worldview and theology and religion and all that stuff and just shared ideas humbly and graciously and it was a very, very good conversation. I asked if I could pray for him. He said, of course. I prayed for him and, and walked away and a few days later he passed away. That is such a defining story in my mind because as a young teenage religious zealot, to me, this was all about an issue. To me, this was all about like religious standards and religious norms and what is sin and what isn't and what is judgment and what isn't. And and I was in the mix. I was a religious zealot. Arrogant, arrogant. And this man taught me humility. This man ministered to me infinitely more than I could have ever possibly ministered to him. And God used that man honestly to save me from my religious zealousy that did and would have continued to hurt people. God used him to save me. And it was a long journey and it was a difficult journey. And I'm not telling you I've arrived at all on that journey but he taught me to humanize everything and to humanize everyone because this was a human being made in the image of God. He wasn't an issue. He wasn't a religious fight. He wasn't a moral fight. He wasn't a political fight. He was a human being made in the image of God that God loves very much and that God had had brought forgiveness and grace and mercy to him. And he was very merciful to me and gracious to me. And I learned a lot. And that began an incredible transformation for me. And some of us might need a little bit of humanizing. If we have that zealous streak to us, if we have that judgmental streak to us about anything, about politics, about race, about culture, anything, if we look down upon another human being and judge another human being, we've got to realize those are the same people in Jericho judging Zacchaeus and judging Jesus. And we've got to say, God, if there's any bit of judgment, would you please take that from me? And what we can do is take a chance and to say, hey, okay, if there's someone I'm judging, I want to invite them to coffee. If there's someone that's judging, I wouldn't suggest you say I'm staying at your house tonight like Jesus did, a little much, but get to know them. Have a coffee, have some lunch. Get to know their story, learn from them, and amazing things can happen that will align this place with the kingdom of heaven. But I'm going to warn you, if you start living a life the way Jesus lived his life, and you've got a bunch of religious friends, they're going to start judging you the way they judge Jesus. I love Luke 7:34. Jesus says, hey, listen, I've got a reputation and it's not so good. The son of man feasts and drinks and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. That's the reputation Jesus had. So I'm going to warn you, if you walk a journey of befriending people that religious people don't like, this is going to be your, reg- your reputation. Glutton, drunkard, friend of sinners. And listen, I'll be honest with you, Rancho Church gets that on a fairly regular basis. To which I say in email form, you're welcome. No, I'm trying not to be snarky. No judging, I can't, I just stop, stop, stop. 
If the accusation is you're a friend of sinners, it is the very accusation of Jesus. So we must be doing something right. So if you start living your life that like Jesus and living a life that welcomes and embraces and leads with that, you just might get a little bit of a reputation. But some of us might actually feel not so much like the judgers, but like the judged. Some of you might feel very much like Zacchaeus. You may feel as though there's some guilt about the things you've done that you are feeling, and you're feeling that maybe from God, but you might be feeling that because you've been rejected and judged by your maybe religious family or your religious community or your youth group or your church at some point has judged you and made you feel like you're on the house, which is why I think Luke 19 focuses on Zacchaeus' height and that tree. And I don't think that's an accident. Zach couldn't see Jesus. It's not about how tall he was. It's about this sort of metaphorical reality that he couldn't see Jesus. He felt far apart from God. He felt far apart from Jesus, maybe even unworthy to be around Jesus. He just couldn't see God. And so he climbs up on a tree all by himself, right? Again, that's a word picture that he's alone. He's totally alone. He has no friends. His failure, his sin has hurt so many people. He's got no friends. He can't see God and he's by himself. That's why it talks about his height in that tree. He can't see God and he's by himself which is why the most powerful moment of the story is Jesus just pressed with people walking through Jericho, looks up and what? Sees. He looked at Zacchaeus and says, I'm with you tonight. God sees him and God is with him. He's no longer invisible to God and he's no longer alone. Isn't that beautiful? That's so beautiful. Who's Jesus today, people? Who's the living, breathing Jesus today? That'd be us. We've got the spirit of God in us. Let's see people who don't think they're seen by God or have been rejected by others and let's be with them. Let's live life with them. I'm with you tonight. All right, we're gonna close in a song that's pretty sick, Dion. This one's pretty awesome. Absolutely. It's been in my head like all week. I heard it on Tuesday. I'm like, oh, that's gonna be good. (laughs) And you're gonna bring it. Uh, What's the song about? It's just about not being forgotten. Jesus knows your name, even in Temecula, California. Sometimes people can feel insignificant, but it's like, no, I know your name. I know who you are. And people can feel judged. They can feel like a failure. They can feel separated from God, and they can feel alone, and God says, you're not forgotten. So so sing a little uh, bit of it. So it goes, I am not for... I'll sing it. You know? (laughs) I am not forgotten. I am not forgotten. I am not forgotten. God knows my name. I love it. I love it. So we can sing that. We can sing that. All right. So let's stand. There's a couple ways to clap on this. And so you'll do one way. I'll do the other. Right. So let's go for it.
remember that we're never forgotten. I'm going to say it first right here. part of what I'm going to be just kind of taking with me for the week. Absolutely. And so if uh, some of us, myself included, kind of tend towards the judgment, maybe we can walk more of a road of humility and grace. And for those of you who have felt the weight of being judged, know that you're not forgotten. Jesus saw Zacchaeus, God sees you, and we see each other in one big happy family of, of faith, right? That's pretty cool. Absolutely. All and right. hey, we want to continue the celebration out there with you on the patio. I don't know if you heard, but we have pancakes. So come join us for lunch. It's a beautiful day. And if you need prayer, we've got a team over here. They would love to pray for you. Absolutely. And if we haven't met you yet, my wife and I are going to be over there. If you're new or newer to Rancho, we'd love to say hi, get to know you a bit. Thanks for coming. God bless you. Look forward to seeing you next week for the final series of Jesus Said What? what? All right. See ya. Take care.